Here in Orlando, Florida, O-Town Compost is leading the composting revolution, recycling organic waste into a nutrient-rich resource. Join Charlie Pioli, founder of O-Town Compost, as we hear from the nation's leading voices behind the grassroots community composting movement. Welcome to the Community Composting Podcast. If you enjoy the Community Composting Podcast and want to support future episodes, please follow the link in the episode show notes to give a small monthly reoccurring donation, even if it's 5 to $10 a month. We'll continue to come out with killer content to keep the grassroots movement rolling. Hi, welcome to episode number 12 of the Community Composting Podcast. I have... Connor Miller with Black Earth Compost here with me today. Uh, Black Earth it operates in Central and Eastern Mass. And they're one of a couple other composters in Massachusetts. But uh, Connor has, you know, grown Black Earth to quite um, an impactful composting business. And yeah, I just wanted to talk with you today, Connor. And how many uh, tons have you guys diverted in your, your lifespan? Uh, we recently calculated, like, I think it was 100 million pounds. So Jeez. whatever that is down to 2,000. To yeah. 2000, I, don't, I don't remember. I have a feeling you're not just rolling across, you know, totes across the scale anymore. You're kind of past that yeah, point. Um, <laughs> but yeah, thanks so much for joining me. Um, yeah, I know that, you know, you and Bootstrap and I think one, uh, one or two other are all kind of operating in Massachusetts, which is kind of a, a great state for this community composting due to the density, the education yeah. level and income level. But you know, how has it been? Um, you know, is it competitive? You before this call, you were saying that you and Bootstrap kind of complement each other's services. Um, what what is the market like as a company? Yeah, um, yeah, I'd say it's probably mostly the two of us, Bootstrap and Black Earth, um, and we're kind of good for like a mass adoption lower price curbside type of thing and uh bootstraps has been great for more niche things like getting into apartment buildings high rises uh anything where you have to like park and go inside i think they do a lot of offices that way and um so a lot of a lot of stuff that is a great complimentary so we can kind of cover the whole spectrum that way and uh, you guys are more of the just, you know, you do collection at all hours. You don't even really, um, do you get out of the truck for your commercial collection? Or you yeah, know? well, to get the totes onto lifts, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we you don't are have able to lift. lift the lids and see if there's contamination or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. How has contamination been? Uh, I would say it's been been pretty much great except for a couple of Boston places. Um, you know, we do, 
lately we got a bunch of chipotles this spring and they've had kind of a rough start on contamination like maybe a third of them are having contamination challenges but uh that's because they're new and then we also pick up from a lot of these downtown boston um uh residential drop-off locations and that started out contaminated but we uh were able to add locks and so subscribers you don't have to pay to do it but you have to take a test with the city and then they'll give you a code to get access so that helped on contamination that's a great yeah. idea and i know in 2014 massachusetts enacted the organics ban of you know, any generators producing over a ton a week or something in, along those yeah. lines has, I know when I was in Boston about four years ago, um, I was working for a couple of catering companies and they were just ignoring the ban completely. Yeah. Uh, is there any enforcement in place? Like, have you seen that? Uh, there's peri periodic enforcement. Mm -hmm. uh, so when they came out, out of the gates, it was like a big year for us. And then all those people that signed up right off the bat over like a few years just started dropping off, like, except for the major big ones. So like anybody around that threshold started thinking, oh, they're not enforcing it and stopped doing it. Right. Um, but meanwhile, a lot more people below the threshold signed up because they're more aware the awareness of composting went up because of that ban. So uh, we've been growing throughout the whole thing, but um, but now this fall, they're going to implement a half a ton ban. So all those people that were close to the threshold, it's not even going to be close anymore. Mm -hmm. And so this is really the biggest segment to uh, target is the, the half ton to a ton segment. And what kind of generators are those like, office buildings maybe or uh maybe lar large office buildings but mm -hmm. they're really going to go after medium to large restaurants uh, they might delay it because of the pandemic you know if restaurants are still recovering they're probably gonna only hit ones that are like right around a ton or something like that but um but uh yeah there's also like a lot of medium-sized grocery chains that aren't doing it um yeah but, and i mean um that sounds like the mom and pop restaurants are gonna you know have to get on board and have you heard you know are they complaining saying it's an overburden for them like how do you you know how do you make it work for a, a mom and pop yeah well a diner or something like that is probably not going to be at one time so I think uh, I think a small restaurant will be fine. So the places like the Chipotle's that have a lot of throughput, that's about the size that would start getting impacted. And I think they're going to go more for those chain type things more than anybody. So like a Starbucks, something like that, where they kind of assume they have the resources and yeah. they have, they can, Probably ideally they deal with less people. So if you have like one franchisee that owns 10 Starbucks or something or Dunkin' Donuts, it's easier to manage than 10 different owners of places. So I think that's my guess is 
that they're going to go for those chains that are producing a lot. And are you, as well as the other community composters and Zero, for example, commercial compost collector, are you guys part of this discussion statewide with DEP? Uh, a little bit. I mean, we're welcome to if you go to the meetings and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I'm all for it, so I don't have a whole lot to say. Um, but uh, yeah, it was good in 2014. This will be good. I'm not sure if it's going to happen this fall or not, but uh, yeah. There's capacity in the state. There's a lot of digesters that are running at like half capacity because just the food waste isn't getting to them, especially with COVID. I mean, that, you know, the digesters hardly got material because yeah. of I have to remember that because I'm here in Florida where <laughs> there was pretty much no break in action. Uh, That's awesome. Went right through it. So. I'm actually, I'm a little jealous of the, the governor. He's, uh, he's on fire. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, speaking of grocery stores, um, you know, those, I think them and industrial uh, food producers, probably the largest volume generators out there. Um, but how do you service them? Like, do you do... I did see that you have one of those nifty trucks with a, a tipper. So you are literally just, um, the tipper brings up the tote, dumps it into the moisture tight um, bed of the truck or container. And you're able to kind of aggregate a, a lot of food waste, but doesn't that get a little hairy on the roads? No, I mean, what would get, what would be hairy? Oh, I don't know. Just, I, I'm just definitely afraid of, um, you know, something spilling out of it. Um, oh, yeah, no, they're leak proof. There's okay. like two layers of defense there. So I mean, in the early days, they weren't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the very beginning, I just had like an F-350 and I was like throwing down cardboard and stuff, trying to mop up any liquids from what I was shoveling in. It was uh So they're specifically for organics. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like a bathtub inside. Um yeah. And how do you dump the material out at the composting site? Well they're dump trucks, so you open the tailgate but and just dump it out. Okay. Awesome. And uh, I did do a little research and saw that you guys do have curbside residential composting. Uh, can you kind of describe your service and how you're a little bit different from, you know, bootstrap with the five gallon bucket? Yeah, we do the 13 gallon ones like the ones behind you. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and it's all weekly. We don't do the biweekly thing. Um, mainly because scheduling challenges and, uh, and in summer it gets disgusting. Hmm. What about, what about in Florida? Does it get nasty all year round if you were bi-weekly or something? Well, we definitely lift those lids and there is mold typically with bi-weekly. 
Um, obviously, we don't have a biweekly option for our commercial clients. Yeah. Because uh, they just, you know, generate too much. You don't want to risk that. But yeah, uh, there is definitely a, a smell in the in the pickup truck or the van when you're going around. You know, I I think that our employees are pretty hardy individuals, though, and they're okay with it. But yeah, it's good for the immune system. <laughs> yeah. Many guys get sick this whole year with COVID. Yeah. I was encouraging the coronavirus to come on. Like, <laughs> I'll take you. I was surprised we were like high up on the list for vaccinations as utility workers. Because uh, we probably have like the best immune systems out of anybody in the country, the compost workers, you know. <laughs> yeah. Outside, getting exercise, getting challenged with your immune system and all this stuff. But uh, Yeah. So does it, is uh, commercial collections sometimes hard in those narrow Boston alleys and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Some of them are really narrow. I bet. But, yeah, we get dinged up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, to, that is. And do you guys, uh, when do you start your routes typically in the morning? Uh, it depends. Um, I mean, some places you're not allowed to go in super early. Mm. Sometimes for like city of Boston, some of our guys want to get started at like 2.30 a.m. or something to move through the city without traffic. Um uh, but generally, for residential pickup, we start at 7 a.m. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know for some of these commercial clients or institutional clients, like my old alma mater, Northeastern University, they issue bids um, or they issue, you know, RFP, request for proposal, and, you know, you have to bid on that. Do, do you guys actively bid on some of these? Yeah, we didn't get Northeastern. I don't know. If, I don't remember who got them. It might have been Saro. Saro got it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think they generally, Saro probably had a, a low price to get that one. I think they generally go for, like, the lowest price, but. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but basically, you have like a a marketing department in your in your your company that uh, is able to put together like a formatted proposal. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just think, cut and paste most of it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's pretty cool. I mean, uh, that kind of reminds me of like my consulting days where you really have to you know have a good approach to efficiently removing the food waste from the 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 site so i think you know i i i'm not sure if um there's any art to that or if you're involved with that but do you have any recommendations for other community composters who may not even know where to start when they're putting together a proposal to win like a municipal curbside contract or something like that? Well, I don't, I don't know. They usually just ask for all this information. So 
I just like, you know, wrote it down once, you know, like, um, what's the mission of your company? How many employees? Um, how much equipment do you have? Are you financially solvent? Like, what evidence do you have of being financially solvent? Um, so track record, references, where does the material go? You know, why are you different from other companies? Stuff like that. So yeah, you just have a template that you just copy paste when yeah. you know, the next couple of times that you do it. Yeah. Cool. Um, I, um, I mean, I, I, I love the fact Massachusetts has these small municipalities who, you know, partner with the composters like yourself and Bootstrap, like Lexington, for example, you know, on their website, they're like relaying the information about your service directly to residents. And if they sign up, they will provide the resident with a startup kit, you know, maybe a roll of liners or yeah. um, a little kitchen caddy. Um, you know, what has that process been like, you know, getting these municipalities on board or did they just approach you in the first place? Um, I'd say we approached them in the beginning and now they're approaching us because there's lots of peer pressure. So it's kind of like that social proof thing where other people are doing it and there's more pressure on yourself to do it. And uh, so that's giving more towns and more residents to say, hey, what's going on with my town? Why aren't they offering this? So uh, most of them are doing that kind of like starter pack. They buy a bin and a roll of compostable bags to subsidize a resident starting. Right. That's great, I think. And the resident is allowed, the resident can just choose which service they want uh, between you and, you know, the other couple. Yeah, I think it depends on the town because I don't think most of the towns have another company. And I don't know if they buy other companies' bins. Um, so, like, Boston isn't buying anybody's bins. So, people are buying ours and bootstraps. I don't know if bootstrap sells bins. I think it might just be part of their program. Yeah. Um, yeah. And does the city of Boston, are they interested in making a more wide scale curbside <laughs> they, program? They were three years ago and they had, they had a bid and bootstraps and us were the only ones that responded. So they said we both won and then nothing happened. <laughs> oh no. That's yeah. ridiculous. I, I don't know what happened exactly, but but they are doing uh, the Project Oscar where we go around to like six or so different places in Boston and empty the community commercial size totes. So that's oh, the drop off. So yeah, drop off. Yeah. So that's free for residents. So and they're probably going to expand it a lot this year because it's uh, it's a lot more popular than it was when they started it. Are you in Bootstrap at all concerned that's going to take away from your pickup service? No. Uh, I mean, we pick it up, so it doesn't really matter to us. But uh, but I, I there's a I think there's a certain portion of 
the population that will not pay for it no matter what. And um, there's also a certain portion that will only do curbside. They don't want to put it in their car and drop it off somewhere. Um, so I don't know how much overlap there is between drop-offs and curbside. And that's if it's like a transfer station town where everybody's going to the drop-off. Right. They're kind of different niches. Yeah, like some of those New England towns like Winchester, where my aunt used to live, they're responsible for dropping off their trash, um, you know, when whenever they want yeah. to dispose of it. So they have to go to their local transfer station. And it's a small community, so it's not that far of a drive. But that would um, be a big uh, influencer in whether people are you know, going to go with a pickup service or a drop-off service. Yeah. Yeah, so that's really interesting. And uh, your curbside programs in Massachusetts are often paired with pay-as-you-throw curbside garbage service. Have you, what uh, has happened, like, have you seen more weight in the compost bins due to that? Yeah, I think it is better off that way. Um, it's more motivating for sure, but I don't know if people's bins are heavier or not. Generally, they're heavier in more uh, suburban type towns than uh, urban. So, but I, I don't know if it has to do with pay as you throw or not. Hmm. I wonder why they're heavier in more suburban towns. They just buy a lot more, have bigger families, maybe. My guess is the family size. Yeah. That's interesting, though. Um, and obviously, like, if, you know, you're saving money by reducing your trash and diverting that waste into the, the curbside recycling and composting bins, it, the incentive is there to... Yeah. Um, definitely fill up those composting bins. You don't think uh, you, you said 12 or 13 gallon curbside cart. You don't think that's too big for a weekly collection? A lot of them fill it all the way to the top. Some even buy two bins. Oh, you, yeah, that's right. You do take yard waste though, right? Well, yeah, but that's separate because yard waste, we have, we ask them to put it in leaf bags. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I remember this one family of four when I was doing the Salem route every week, it was filled to the brim and it was like 50 pounds. Wow. Uh, yeah. And I, I would like talk to the woman periodically, like, I don't know how you do it, <laughs> but like we have a family of four in my house and we, we probably fill it two thirds of the way every week. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause and I give food to my dog. So, like, if I didn't have a dog, I'd probably be filling it. I have heard that people food feed their food scraps to their dogs. Like, that's another form of food waste recycling. <laughs> yeah, it's less uh, less expense for buying yeah. dog food. Yeah, but us, five you know, the services with five-gallon buckets. There's even community composters with four-gallon buckets. I've noticed that our subscribers generate on average 11 pounds per week. Yeah, it's about similar here. Okay, yeah. So they probably cram it in. 
Yeah, they must. Well, anyways, enough about your collections. I think you guys are like killing it. I know in 2014, you guys brought on like a huge number of clients. And what was the process like going from, you know, a, a smaller business prior to that to being able to grow to meet that demand? What was that growth process for you? Um, honestly, it was like surfing a wave that kept getting bigger and bigger <laughs> and you're pointing it down the face. And if you go point too fast, you're going to nosedive. <laughs> and if you get back on your heel, you're going to go right over the back of the wave. And it's just like, exhilarating and nerve-wracking just pointing it <laughs> yeah and of you know during that time you probably weren't getting a ton of sleep what were some good decisions that you made through that riding the wave process um well one thing we hardly had any employees it was me and two partners we were working like 80 hours a week um i'm like hardly any pay probably for like two, three bucks an hour. Um, but, you know, we were all, you know, I, I like used to be a ski bum for 10 years in Jackson Hole and lived in a treehouse half the year. I could live on nothing for a long time. And, uh, you know, I used to get bagels from the local bagel shop after they closed. And that was like half my food intake was the free bagels. But, uh, turn them into PB&Js, pizzas. So anyways, starting up, it was uh, for the first few years, probably actually like seven years, it was uh, not making like any money, uh, being extremely frugal, buying everything used and fixing it ourselves and learning how to like weld on YouTube and stuff like that. Like, I mean, using YouTube to learn how to do everything from brakes or whatever, just wow. not spending any money. And what vehicles did you guys have at that point? Um, well, early on, we had an F-350, then a 450, then a 650. Um, all old used things. I wouldn't recommend doing that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's what we had for the first few years. And then we started buying Hino's around 2015. What are Hino's? Um, it's a truck that is like a quarter owned by Toyota. Hmm. But they're kind of like Isuzu's. And are they box trucks or those? Um, well, we, we put dump bodies on them so they dump out. Oh, gotcha. Well, yeah, that's that sounds like an amazing period. And, you know, I think any composter hopes they can go through that, even though it's turbulent and choppy. I know I'm, I'm kind of going through that right now as we look towards the fall when these elementary schools and university clients come on. I mean, we're going to grow like tenfold overnight so um it's a little bit nerve-wracking yeah just if you say no to it then somebody else will say yes so 
Yeah. Yeah. Why would I say no? I mean, I, if it, you know, this is why I got into it. So I hope yeah. other community composters realize that, that the goals they started their company with, you know, this is uh, what a lot of us do it for. So, and I'm sure you're a very passionate individual about the environment. Like what was that, the factor that pushed you forward even through those low paying 80 hour weeks? Um, I think I'm just an optimist by nature and it wasn't like, I don't know. It wasn't that bad. I mean, when yeah, it's your own free bagels. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, when, when you don't have a boss, when you're your own boss and it's up to you, it's a lot different than being told what to do. It's, it's an adventure really. I mean, Mm -hmm. so yeah it's, i think that's a great lesson is at the end of the day you know it doesn't matter that much you know we're just here to do what we're what we're passionate about and kind of enjoy life yeah but the other thing too though like if you fail it's you can't really blame other people for it so it, it's up to you you have your life in your reins. See what you can do. You're going to fail or succeed on, on the merits. Um, and so, I mean, that's when if it's in your face like that. You're going to want to succeed and you're going to try as hard as you can to make it work. Um, especially if there's no other good option. Like I have an English degree. I don't know what else I'm going to do. You know, like, I did writing for a little bit. It doesn't pay anything. I did substitute teaching at Jackson Hole, and and I realized I didn't like dealing with high school kids. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought I was going to be a teacher or something, but uh, so this was it. So I had to make it work. And uh, when you're young and single, it's like you got nothing to lose. You know, like what's going to happen? Are you going to go hungry? no yeah not in this country like i wouldn't do this if i was a dad and like i have to pay for all this stuff on a monthly basis that's that's risky yeah. but if you're single you got nothing to lose you're not going to go hungry you're not going to freeze out in the cold like you don't need much to live on i think too many people have too comfortable a life to take any kind of risk so yeah you know. I mean, my background sounds kind of similar to yours um before i started o-town compost i was all about financial independence that was how i saved enough money i was saving about 40 percent of my paycheck at my old job and that's what you know springboarded me to being able to start o-town compost in the first place so, yeah. yeah, I think that's a great lesson is, you know, you, you can't really take these risks and left unless you, you know, feel confident and have maybe the financial resources to do so. Yeah. Well, so I, I, again, I looked in Jackson Hole after college and I mean, I was like climbing up and skiing down mountains and stuff. I've been 
caught in a few avalanches and, you know, I had friends that didn't make it out of some. So to me, my idea of risk was this was not risky. You know, like yeah. I've, I've seen shit that's risky. Starting a company single when you're 30 is the least risky thing you can do. It's actually riskier to not do it, I think, because yeah. if you start working for other people, you know, let's say you work till you're like 45, 50, and then your company goes bust. Other people might not want to hire somebody in their 50s. So you just risk 20 years of work and somebody else failed, you know. So there's lots of risks to not do your own thing. Yeah, I think you're right. As you start to take on more food scraps, you realize very quickly that you need a better composting system to process the material. This is why I highly recommend the aerated static pile micro bin designed and made easy by O2 Compost. In 60 days, I have finished compost without putting in the labor of turning the pile. The piles heat up to over 140 degrees, killing pathogens, weed seeds, and fly larvae, making the end product safe to use in the garden. With 32 plus years of experience in the compost industry, Peter Moon, owner of O2 Compost, is a leading expert in the field of ASP composting. I encourage you to set up a free half an hour consultation with Peter Moon by going to his website, www.o2compost.com. That's the letter O, the number two, compost.com. If you mentioned that you heard about O2 Compost on this podcast, you'll receive a 10% discount on the purchase of the Microbin Compost Training Program. Um, you know, I just wanted to fast forward to where you are today. Like, how many tons is Black Earth Compost doing a week of, of food waste? Um, I mean, we don't process it all ourselves. We probably don't even... Uh, Oh, I thought you had your own composting site, right? Oh, yeah, we have two. But we go to, like, a few other sites, too, just because we can't handle it all ourselves. Um, I haven't weighed them in a long time, all of our trucks, but I would say it's probably, like, 150 to 200 tons a week, something like that. Um, Wow. I mean, it was, like, up there before COVID and all the restaurants kind of dropped off. Um. But the residents like kind of brought it back up. So I, I would say it's in that ballpark. Wow, but, that's crazy. And what are some of the other pieces of food waste recycling infrastructure that you're able to tip your food waste at? Are you talking about like farms or AD? Food? Yeah, we go to farms, other compost sites, mm-hmm. some AD. We generally try to not do the AD because it's like twice as expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's really expensive and their hours are harder. Farms are the best because they, they were open seven days a week, like 24 uh, seven, kind of like us. It's like, you know, you yeah. can just count on farm farmers to be working on a Sunday or a holiday. So yeah. that's cool. And uh, of you have two composting sites. What method of composting are you using? And you know, what does your weekly throughput look like? 
and maybe your largest? Uh, yeah, we do aerated static piles. And um, I think I think we're doing like maybe 5,000 yards a year, probably per site of uh, like finished compost coming out. Uh, I think it's around there. I'm not 100%, but I really do more of the collection side and not the compost sales. But uh, yeah. Yeah, and just for our listeners, composting or what Connor does is his black earth is like vertically integrated, meaning they do both the collection and the processing, which are really two separate businesses. But I think that's really cool that you guys are able to do both and you use ASP. Um, do you guys like I'm, I'm guessing you have like high density polyethylene pipes you're not doing this on little rinky dink pvc yeah we do have that but um we have at the groton site we put in a uh like a concrete bunker building and so it has it's in floor aeration on that one okay so that way you can scoop it up with a loader bucket flat and not hit the pipes because the pipes are literally in, in the floor under the grade. Yeah. Do you, I've heard the, the maintenance with in floor air, you know, ASP is a little bit um, trickier because like they get clogged and. Yeah. So this isn't sealed in like that. They have grates that we can just pull up. Mm. So. Yeah, we don't have to worry about cloggages because you can just pull the grate right out. Oh, okay, great. And yeah. um, we'll see. Maybe they bounce out. We'll see if, if it's a new site. So we'll see how it does. And where did you guys uh, source the site? I know we, uh, well, we built it ourselves for the most part. But Andrew hired Green Mountain Technologies out of Seattle for some of the consulting. Okay. And yeah, I've done a little research myself and Green Mountain looks like they're amazing, like great consultants at ASP. Yeah, they are. Have you guys looked at like the Gore uh, blankets? Yeah, but that was like $60,000 for one blanket. Something. This oh. is like, it's like five years ago last time I looked. Yeah. And I think they last like five years or something. And it was just, and they degrade in the sun. Um, it seemed, it seemed expensive uh, yeah. for, for a blanket. We tried our own blankets. We even like uh, bought like an industrial sewing machine and started sewing Tyvek sheets together, like long 200 by eight foot sections of Tyvek. Um, because Tyvek is breathable, like gore, um, and pretty uh, strong material. But just dealing with tarps on that level is a pain in the butt. Yeah. And I think, like, the whole purpose behind the blanket or the tarp is to kind of suppress the odors and retain the moisture of the pile. Is that why... 
like what what was the benefit in your eyes to use yeah that? no i think it's a good idea and they have like these like uh these rollers that can roll it on and off really easily so you know we've been on these really small sites without good ground and we don't have like a great setup where you have these huge nice concrete areas that you can put rollers on and all that so i'm sure that the theory behind it is great and it's just we haven't had a site that's quite suitable for that but mm. um, i mean i've thought about it because you could use like a pool roller or something like that to just roll the tie back up and back but um and the the system you currently use that was developed by green mountain technologies like what is that uh like if you had to describe the design well we would like be grinding it with a grinder bucket inside a building so like an alu grinder bucket to shred all the compostable bags and and all that mix it together blow like a lot of air in for like a week or so and but then how do you mix it just curious uh just with a loader bucket is there any um, art to you know mixing it properly with a, a loader bucket or a skid steer bucket i'm sure there is i've never done it oh, okay. <laughs> i mean i i did it in a skid steer bucket years ago but uh, i think you just dump it on car on carbon and then you just kind of like shred it all together mm -hmm. and you just you know grab a scoop of one thing and then another and just kind of like lift it, flip it around on itself. But, but shredding it and stuff on the, in the bucket is what, what's good. And then you give it like a week to kind of leach out and blow a lot of air in. And then after like a week or 10 days, it's kind of unrecognizable. Then you can move it outside and then have like a older compost. as like a biofilter cap on it. And uh, how, how do you shred it? The alley bucket has uh, these teeth in it. Oh, okay. Is it like a, um, what do they call those, like, uh, those tub grinders? Is it kind of like that? Uh, I don't think it's like, it's more like a, a, a grinder picture. Uh, it's kind of like a uh, star screener. It's these, oh, okay. these discs that grab it and push it into itself kind of through underneath the bucket and is that where you get a lot get rid of a lot of the plastic contamination or is it on the back end when you're screaming yeah the, it's really like either the driver or the back end mm -hmm. that you get rid of contamination I mean, say your driver lifts the lid, he sees just egregious amount of contamination. What is your guys' policy? Uh, do you fine or? Uh, we do, like, um, if they want us to take it, we will pick it out there and fine them a lot for it. We usually just reject it and have them sort it out and encourage whoever did it that they sort that out so um, that person doesn't want to have to go through totes of food waste again <laughs> yeah 
but yeah, that's uh, I think that's the right way to do it. Um, yeah, so your composting site, you know, I would love to tour it someday if I'm ever in, um, you know, you said Gloucester, Massachusetts, Gloucester. Yeah, the sites are in Manchester and Groton. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would be very interested because we're yeah, going, anytime. Yeah, we're going through our design process right now, and I've kind of designed uh, four bays with an aeration pipe above ground. Okay. Um, but that, you know. The buck, the the skid steer kind of risks damaging the pipe, but um, yeah, it just I'm what what is your source of carbon there at the your composting site? Uh, well, leaves, ground yard waste, and uh, in Manchester, there's a lot. It's a lot of horse country, so we get a lot of horse bedding, which is like. Great. They drop it off for you? Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, that's... How do you set that up? Like, any words of wisdom? Because Orange County, Florida is plenty of stables as well. Oh, yeah? Uh, well, word gets out. I mean, they these horse places want to get rid of it, and they'll want to go to the closest place, especially if it's free. Otherwise, it just piles up in their place. Yeah. So, yeah, it... There's, there's a lot near us, so it's been kind of easy. I think horse manure and bedding is like... Yeah, it's best. Best material yeah. for compost. It's so like crumbly already. Yeah. Bedding is great carbon. So... Yeah. Yeah, I know some people have been uh, kind of concerned about the deworming medication that a lot of these stables use, but I found a couple academic studies online that kind of prove that through the thermophilic composting process, it kind of mitigates any of those, uh, the medication. So yeah, I okay. feel comfortable with it. Yeah. I mean, our pile's like 160 for a couple of months. Like if you put anything in your oven at 160 for 60 days, like it is charred black, like nothing is yeah. going to survive that. Exactly. And and um, do you feel like, like I've heard from some composters, if you go over 160, that's where it's kind of like a cause for concern. You're killing some of the yeah. microbes and stuff. Yeah. I mean, like probably 145, 150 is ideal. Mm -hmm. but, uh, it just, yeah, it can get a pot when you got to just blow a lot of air in. And sometimes we don't have... I mean, we run on solar power, so uh, it might not get quite the amount of air to keep it down. Okay, well, I have just one more question for you. Um, you know, I recently listened to an ISLR podcast where Lore of Zero was interviewed, and she was talking about how a lot of commercial organics is being bid on by depackaging plants and industrial kind of food waste recyclers who aren't putting in the care to, you know, give the material its best use, you know, turning it into a soil amendment 
or a resource that is clean and uncontaminated. They're just saying, hey, we have a depackaging plant. Don't worry about, you know, depackaging the the material at the source, like at the grocery store. Just throw it in our containers, our dumpsters, and we'll pick it up. And they depackage it, send it through anaerobic digestion and you know, what's left is a, a slurry with a bunch of microplastics and then they will uh, dump that on like farmland. Yeah. I mean, what is your, have you dealt with this kind of competition before? Yeah, it's, um, it's the biggest problem with the AD is that it either goes to like the sewage treatment plants where it's used for energy, not for soil. And my feeling is, I mean, this is food. The highest end use is being able to make more food. Like we don't need help on electricity. We, we get spend the money on solar panels or something. You know, it's cheaper, it's cleaner. It's food is not renewable energy. You know, if, if you light it on fire, if you gasify it and burn it, that's not renewable. Um, so that's one thing that annoys me. And on the farms, like, yeah, they burn some of it and they're able to use some of it. So that's cool. Um, but the only thing with that is the stuff they put on the farms, the liquid stuff, does have a lot of trash. They don't have a means of getting the trash out. And so the farmers want to get paid more to have the liquid dumped on their property. You know, they, they might not want to pay or they there might be more competition for that stuff in like hot July, August when the farm could use the liquid. But other times a year, like they want money for it because uh, it's putting on plastic. And if you do that over 20 years, you're going to have fields of plastic. Um, and uh, and the other thing is. They don't have a means of, the compostable bags are terrible on the AD. Um, mm. So they get pulled out in the packet, in the depackaging process. A lot, most of the compostables do. And so uh, people are doing the extra effort of spending money to, you know, try to be green. But if that stuff's going in the trash, that doesn't help. Yeah. Uh, the problem in Massachusetts is that there's just not capacity for compost to take all this stuff at all. The ADs are open. They can take the food waste. So we're trying to open up more sites so we don't need the ADs, but we still need ADs hmm. or where else are we going to go? Uh, uh, I, I mean, we wonder don't... if the ADs could focus on the biosolids and leave the food waste feedstock to the composters. Yeah. Well, I mean, they still do, but there's not enough composting capacity. Mm. I mean, Eastern Massachusetts is, has a lot of residents and land is expensive and you can't make money on land composting as much as you can putting up a building that does something else. It's composting like just doesn't make enough money per acre to compete. And, uh, so it's hard to uh, 
you know, ADs can have like 500 tons per throughput on like an acre or two and composting uh, might be able to do like 50 tons or something. You know, the AD can handle 10 times more, but they're really expensive. It's adding like a whole nother expensive step and the depackaging can't happen at the farms. So you have to put it back in a truck and truck it again. So I wonder, I mean, I know Massachusetts doesn't have too many landfills anymore, maybe in Western Massachusetts, but using barren landfill surface um, to, you know, turn into a composting facility. I know that that's my goal here in Orange County. We have the state's yeah. biggest landfill. You know what? It would just make a lot of sense to kind of repurpose yeah. that area. So we're working on doing that in Manchester. Uh, we might get a site on top of a landfill this summer, but uh, landfills have other tricky things. There's these post-closure use permits that can be pretty restricting. Uh, you can't put like a building on top of a landfill a lot of the time because they're worried about the settlement of the landfill squashing things underneath. And, and they, uh, you know, a lot of them are kind of not flat enough at the top either. And you, you have to be careful digging in. So you have to put a lot of money on building up a surface so that you're not going to dig in with your loader bucket or something and penetrate the seal. Right. So there's challenges with landfills. So you can just pour a concrete pad or something and... Yeah, well, concrete, may, it depends how much weight the landfill can hold. Oh. We wanted to put a nice concrete building on it. The engineers said it was going to squash it like a pancake. Oh. And uh, so, and this one's... Yeah. What's that? Yeah, that's tricky. Um, yeah, and they often put landfills in wetlands because back in the day, wetlands were useless, so might as well dump in it. And uh, and so now composting on top of one that leads into a wetland, you got to be even more careful. Uh, right, the leachate. Yeah, that reminds me of the Saugus wheel abrader up mm -hmm. north of Boston, right in the wetland. All that fly ash just raining down on, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, and they're trying to extend it into the ocean even more. Yeah. They're out I of room. I feel like between Black Earth Compost, you guys, Bootstrap, Zero, you know, the other forms of infrastructure, uh, infrastructure that's out there, you guys have to be making a serious impact on organics diversion in a in a state Massachusetts's size. I mean, don't get me wrong, some still goes to the the wheel abraders and the incinerators, but you know, you're you're probably doing them such a favor by not yeah. sending their You know who probably picks up the most though? Who? Pig farmers. Oh, really? It's they quietly are probably picking up more than all of us composters combined. Oh, wow. Yeah. You see their trucks around. Most people don't recognize them, but I know who they are. And they're, they're big trucks and they, they absorb like most of the grocery stores and the grocery stores. I mean, 
some of them produce as much as like a city. It's like, wow. you know, we would go to this one grocery store, they'd have 50, 64 gallon totes per stop four days a week. Oh my goodness. That's like five tons, four days a week. That's 20 tons in one week. Oh my God. It, yeah, this like a whole city. A, a normal size grocery store? No, it was a big one. Oh, okay. But still. Yeah, I know um, some of these Costco's BJ's. They, um, you know, they they're easily generating like ten tons a week of food waste. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, as composters, we try to take. We want to try to take that on. But if you know, if it's going to feed an animal, I feel like you know that's not such a bad outlet. No, I'm not complaining. I think it's great. Yeah, same. All right. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful interview, Connor. You guys, thank are, you. you guys are crushing it out there in Massachusetts. Thanks. And I can only aspire to be, you know, bring O-Town Compost to where you guys are with your commercial residential collection. Uh, you know, you guys are reselling compostable products as well. Yeah. And um yeah, you have your own composting sites and you know, follow Black Earth Compost on Instagram because they really have some nice looking finished compost. And do you have more than one like blend or is it pretty much just one? Uh well, we have a soil blend for um like a raised bed mix, so it's like half soil, half compost. Uh, we sell leaf mulch and then compost. Okay. Great. Well, have a good uh, rest of the night. You too. Thanks. Sure. Bye-bye. Please rate and review on whichever podcast platform you're listening to. If you feel like this is good content and you're learning a lot about compost, 